Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Good morning. Um, I am very pleased to be here. Um, very pleased. I told the early service, the truth is, uh, even if I weren't too pleased to be here, I'd probably say that, but um, I really am pleased to be here. Uh, this church, Grace Covenant, is different from many churches um, the commitment to truth and to consistency in your lives, I think, is admirable. Uh, it's great to be here and see uh, friends. It helps comfort me, uh, Frank and Kathy Childers and uh, many others. Uh, and I need comfort because also in this service is the person whose approval I need probably more than I should, and that's my wife, Sally. Sally, would you stand up? Yes, please. This is why I'm nervous right there. Thank you. I mean, husbands, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like it doesn't, you could be a rock star and a stadium cheering, but if your wife's in the front doing this, you'd stop the whole concert and go, oh, am I too loud? Is that what it is? Right? You have to explain this to single people. They're like, why are you so? You don't understand. She, whatever. All right. So, but I am very, uh, um, I like coming here. I like to know uh, how well people listen because when I, I realize when I pray about what we're going to talk about, um, if, if, this church is an authorized dealership of the gospel, then I'm sort of like a shade tree mechanic that um, I do a lot of under-the-hood work, and um, I'm here to talk to you about some stuff that gunks up a lot of motors, uh, maybe if we can kind of clean that up. Um, but this is a little bit difficult because this is kind of intimate, and it'll, it'll be a little bit deep. So I, I want to warn you up front uh, that this is normally the kind of thing I would probably talk to you if you were in my office one-on-one. But since it's just you and me and we're in this giant room, I thought we would just share uh, a little bit about one of the most common struggles that I uh, deal with in Christian life. Because I must be honest with you, I am a little concerned about a loss of depth in our, as Christians, our understanding of deep spiritual struggles that go on within. In other words, as we've gotten better at understanding ourselves psychologically and medically and whatever, I'm concerned that we are losing track of what it really feels like internally to have real spiritual struggles and how to overcome those things. If, if you really want to know more about that kind of stuff, you almost have to read uh, some of the ancient Christian texts, like from St. John of the Cross, 16th century, Augustine in the 4th century. But now these same books sit on the shelf next to the 30-day faith detox and the Holy Spirit, your financial advisor. These are not the same. You see, there's a different level of that. So let me talk to you this morning about why are so many Christians unhappy? You know, we believe that Jesus has given us freedom from our sin, and we have un, uh, or un, uh, we have uh, open access to God who loves us. And yet, so often in the middle of any given day, it's like, well, what has that got to do with anything? doesn't really necessarily apply or seem to bring us peace. So I want to talk to you today about one of, it's not the only one, but one of the most common deep struggles uh, that I deal with a lot. So I was thinking about it in the last two weeks, and let me just give you a couple examples even from the last couple of weeks. I had a mom who came to see me. Actually, I had two, but I'll just tell you about one of them. And uh, she has uh, two grown children. Uh, one of them uh, has been dealing with drugs and alcohol. He's been in and out for a long time. But more recently, her good girl, her daughter, uh, announced that she was divorcing uh, and didn't want to talk to her mother about uh, any th- uh, other path. And this mom, like so many other moms, came to see me, and she asked this question, 
what did I do wrong? Why are my children not following truth? I must have done something wrong as a mother. And you as dads may not know this, but I think virtually every mother knows that feeling of if I'm watching what my children do, even adult or teenage, it must say something about me. Secondly, okay, and so that's one unhappy. Just had another guy. This is a couple that I'm seeing in marriage work, and, and they're overcoming uh, a, a, his infidelity. Um, and um, as you may know, she needs to talk about it, to talk about her pain. And this guy can barely stay in the room when she brings up the subject. He's like, you know, the Bible says that we should forget what is past and look forward. Why can't you do that? And I'll talk to him in private. I'm like, dude, you know she needs to talk about this. Don't you? I mean, do you know that you're forgiven? And he'll say this, I know that Jesus, that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. This is a kind of unhappiness where essentially these are Christians who have weighed themselves in the balance. They have judged themselves and come up short. They are unhappy with themselves. They do not like themselves. Do you know what I'm talking about? Actually, I know you know what I'm talking about because the tendency to judge ourselves negatively is universal. The fact that you are humans, I know something about you. You don't really like you. Uh, if you do really like you this morning, uh, then I'll remind you to think about yesterday, remember, when you didn't. Or just wait till tomorrow when you won't again because all of us struggle with at least small, usually very large parts of us that, yeah, I, I don't like me. We have weighed ourselves and found ourselves wanting. Here's the funny part is that it's so natural that you can see it all the time. For example, when you first hear your voice recorded, okay, an audiologist can explain to you why it sounds different. There's a bone structure different. But nobody can explain why is it virtually every human listens and goes, oh, do I sound like that? I don't think anyone has ever gone, hey, I sound pretty good, ever. <laughs> or, or group photographs that you're in, and you're in a, with a group, and, you, and humans always look first for themselves in the photograph. Why do you, do you not know what you look like? Why do you look for yourself? And second, how many times do you hear this? Oh, I look terrible. No, you don't. You look cute. I look like a troll. No, you're cute. What is that? How come we are never satisfied, virtually never satisfied with a photo of ourselves? Well, there's this negative tendency, and this points to an underlying pattern that exists within our souls that goes on all the time, and I want to try to make it more uh, apparent to you because it is critical as a uh, focus of your spiritual growth and in your life. This pattern is best seen in uh, the book of John, chapter 13 where it's the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You remember that? Jesus begins to wipe, wash their feet. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. 
What I like about this story is that it, it, it clearly shows a pattern, and this uh, within all of us, but Peter will be playing the part of all of us. And, you know, Peter thinks just like we do, but he never knew when to just shut up. It was just always coming out. Remember when the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a different story where it says he did not know what to say. So he said, it's like, dude, just, just don't <laughs> say it. So this is not an unusual situation with Peter, but he makes it very clear in what he says. You see, his first reaction to Jesus washing his feet is what may seem like humility. He doesn't like Jesus maybe washing feet, and he doesn't want him to wash his feet. It turns out it's actually false humility. It's pride that, that he watched Jesus uh, wash the other disciples' feet, but when it came to him, you can just hear him saying, Lord, you will never wash my feet. This was not the first time, nor was it the last time, that he claimed to be essentially the most loyal, humble of his uh, disciples. But uh, before you point your finger at Peter, this, the other disciples did too. Two of them asked, they even sent their mother to ask, um, um, would you let us sit at your right and your left hand? And have, they, they, All of them were striving, okay? But he spoke right up, and he says, you know, I don't, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus reminds him simply of what Peter already knew. This was a common theme in all of Jesus' teaching. Those of you that are clean and well, good for you. I've not come for you. I've come for the sick. I've come for them that need me to wash them, to heal them. And he reminds him that if you don't feel that you need my, my cleansing, then, then you have no part of me. But here's my favorite part. Instead of Peter going, oh, yeah, okay, right. No, now he's like, oh, then, then, then not my, just my feet, my, my head, my everything. I need to just be dipped. And you're like, he's like, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's just, it, it just need to have your feet washed. What is that? How is it that Peter can go in just about two minutes from secretly the superhero disciple in the room to suddenly the most satanic evil man ever who must be cleansed all over? What is that? Well, it's, it's a very common experience. It's, it's really a shame and pride swinging. It's a pendulum that happens all the time within us. Uh, there's a sociologist, Brene Brown. Everyone know Brene Brown? Come on, you got to know. Uh, TED Talk, she's written books on shame. Uh, she's great. She said this about shame. Shame is the intensely pay, painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. It's universal. Do you see it? That he goes from feeling secretly superhero to the lowest human. Turns out that pride and shame are two sides of the same coin. Now, remember, noticing this swing, that's not a, a specifically Christian observation. Great uh, philosophers and deep thinkers throughout centuries have written about this. One of them, for example, is Jerry Seinfeld. He said this, He's talking about men. All men kind of think of themselves like low-level superheroes in their own world. When men are growing up, they're reading about Batman, Spider-Man, and Superman. These are not fantasies. These are options. This is the deep inner secret truth of the male mind. He's right. Uh, I know we're not supposed to be, but it's not just men. It's women as well, and I'm sorry that you have to have that exposed, but that's true. Uh, a more reasonable or more serious example, there's a, there was a philosopher in China, in China uh, 5th century B.C., named Lao Tzu, and he said this, pride attaches undue importance to the superiority of one's status in, in the eyes of others, and shame is fear of humiliation at one's inferior status 
in the estimation of others. When one sets his heart on being highly esteemed and achieves such rating, then he is automatically involved in fear of losing his status. If you're not quite, if you're not quite with me yet, just remember junior high. That's probably the, you know, it's the point when you are first really aware, you're aware enough to know and, and be very conscious of how you come across to others, but you haven't got as sophisticated as the, when you get older to cover it. That's really all that happens. Uh, you know, I don't feel bad anymore that I can't play pro football, but there was a time when I kind of, I'm not proud of that, but it was probably junior high. I was like, yeah, I could maybe, no. It's all right. I've, I've, I've dropped that, so it, I don't feel it all the time. But in junior high, you feel it uh, all the time. But here's the thing to think about. This, this secret, I'm maybe better than, than most anybody, leading to this constant failure, the feeling of deep shame, is universal. Everyone in this room, everyone you know, struggles with this. I know. Some of you are going, well, no, see, I know this guy or this woman. They come to see me. Trust me. They go through the same thing. And any psychologist can tell you that, that when you spend time in intimate discussion with people, it's surprising. Actually, it becomes uh, even more, uh, you get used to it, that when people are way up here, there is a deeper uh, insecurity and fear that maybe I'm a complete fraud. It's with everybody. So, for example, what, where does, here's the problem. We feel the shame, but we're not that aware. We don't walk around feeling proud of ourselves all the time, but it's there. Do you remember the mother I was talking about who's worried that her adult children's bad behavior is definitely the, uh, the, the result of her bad mothering? Well, I offer her the comfort that I offer most mothers when they bring that up. Well, take heart. Based on your logic... If you screwed up as a mother, it's your mother's fault. <laughs> it's just math, right? Guess how many mothers are comforted by that? None. Why? It, aren't you saying that mothers breed? Uh, yeah, but not my mom. Uh, I could and should have been better than that. You see, there's a secret super mom in that. She doesn't feel that. She's not aware of it but she expects something from herself that she doesn't even figure her own kids could do. She, hers was a result of her own bad choices, but, but her children, it's her fault. Do you see it? Remember the guy who had uh, committed adultery and can't stand even talking about it? The funny thing is, in their church, they assigned this couple to a mentor couple, and there was a couple that was older and had gone through similar, except that man in the mentoring couple had had three affairs. And I remember asking this guy, I said, oh, yeah, what about that? You must hate that guy. And he goes, no, 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 he's actually a pretty good guy. I think he's had a hard time. Wait a minute, you can't forgive you for one, and you understand the other guy? You know what I'm talking about. You've heard someone tell some difficulty they're having. It's the same thing you have that you're, like, not okay with. But, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with you. I have more understanding of it. Why is that? Secret superhero, I expect from me more than what I expect from you. By the way, the guy that says that he uh, cannot uh, forgive himself, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says, when people say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, they mean that they have failed an idol whose approval is more important than God's. This guy didn't want to be a forgiven uh, adulterer. He wanted to be a good guy. 
He wanted to be basically a good guy, cannot stand. Uh, That's his idea. Um, The Bible's warning that pride goes before destruction is probably not some promise that God's going to zap anyone that's proud. It's just a fact. Pride is going to go before destruction, before your own, a haughty spirit before a fall. That's just practically a fact of mankind. You watch a person's life long enough, and you will see it happen. But where does this come from? Why is it that we have this automatic back and forth, this shame and this pride? The Bible tells us that it comes from sin. And this is the connection part I want you to make. Because if you're like me, a lot of times you hear about sin and your eyes glaze over. Just, okay, right, it's sin. Now, this is going on in your head. So I want to describe a little bit about the origin of sin, but not because of something that went on way back there. This is going on in the room right now. The Bible tells us the story of sin in Genesis chapter 3. It's, it's that story right there. You remember that? The serpent tempted the woman. Well, I don't have time to go through it, but I would ask you to look over it, to look at it. The serpent tempted the woman. The man and the woman ate of the fruit. Remember that? Here's the keys of the things that I want you to remember, though, is that they were tempted. Satan tempted them because if you ate of the fruit, he said you would be like God. Right? Okay. And then secondly, their eyes were opened. Some awareness came into their uh, experience that was not there before. Third, the, uh, the first reaction of this awareness was they knew they were naked. And then uh, fourth, the first thing they did is they made for themselves loincloths. So, number one, again, keep in mind about that sin was not a couple of kids that broke God's fruit laws. You know, like, you're not supposed to eat that fruit, uh, and God got real mad. That's not it at all. This was creatures who wanted and believed that they could, by doing this, become God, usurp God. It was, it's the ultimate in prideful rebellion. That's what they thought would happen, because the half-lie of Satan, it's often a half-lie, said that if you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. The funny thing is that when they did eat, it worked, kind of. What happened is that, number two, is that when he said, you will be like God, they did. Their eyes were opened to something. And even God, and later in the uh, chapter, says, what will we do now that man has become like us, meaning him? There is an awareness that's something like God-like awareness that happened when they did that. It's changed, and it's changed all of us. Their eyes were opened to something. But what was it open to? Well, this awareness, uh, I think, is, is better than that they would know good and evil. Think of it this way. They became knowers of good and evil. God knows the true good and evil, but what was promised is that they begin to think like a God, making their own decisions about what's good and what's bad. You could almost picture it, that it might have been fun, I don't know, for 30 seconds, maybe 45 seconds, that they're looking around going, you know... He says that all the trees are, are good to eat, but I like that one. I don't think that one. So, and all of a sudden, you're kind of enjoying your own judgment of stuff. And it might be fun until what happened? Until you look at yourself. And they looked at themselves and realized with the, the sinking awareness, I am not God. I am not a God. And suddenly, what they expect from them, God-likeness, and what they really are is shameful. And they felt naked, uncovered. And that's, what we've, that's where shame comes from. You have an automatic in your head 
thinking that's like a god, and you are always striving for what you're not, and you are ashamed of what you are. And we'll come back to that. But then uh, lastly, the important thing is that they knew they were naked, uh, and they felt, um, they felt shame. And then the thing that always happens is that they uh, made coverings. That is, that they um, uh, covered themselves. You know, there's no evidence that they didn't like each other. They covered themselves. And this happens all the time. People who, when you have this self-accusation, I'm not enough, whatever, we have a really, really bad habit of thinking that other people are thinking the same thing we do. Like, uh, you know, it's funny how um, you, uh, um, research shows that you can look someone in the eye without being creepy for about 3.3 seconds. And then it becomes, what are you looking at? I mean, it's this weird, why is it just looking at each other creates this discomfort because we have this really bad feeling that are, you're not thinking about me what I'm thinking about me, are you? We, we have a really, people are really bad at guessing how people see them and how they're viewed by other people. So um, they cover, and that's what we do. We cover. We assume that other people are judging us. Brene Brown said, when we are feeling shame and fear, blame is never far behind. Sometimes we turn inward and blame ourselves and other times we strike out and blame others. We use blame to deal with our feelings of powerlessness. Cain killed his brother Abel. What did Abel do to Cain? Nothing. Abel became the symbol, the awareness, reminded Cain of his own uh, sin and, and rebellion. So what do you do? Repent? <laughs> no, no. Take out uh, my brother so that I don't have to think about it. Cover. And by the way, these coverings are only to help when they were looking at each other, your little coverings don't help when God shows up. You remember when God shows up, they run. You know, it may be fun to kind of dress up like a cop and go to a party and kind of tell people what to do until who shows up? A real cop. Yeah, got to go. Bye. You know, it, there's, you can't fake. The re- and sadly, it's kind of sad but also funny to think about the man uh, hiding from God. This is like your two-year-old playing hide-and-seek going, okay, try to find me. It's like, you're, you're right there, dude. I can see you. God, God knows where you are. So we are stuck then, and this is the important thing, that, that this change, sin, has not been pleasant for us. We are stuck as the man who thinks like a God, who thinks like he is a God. And we are burdened by this. It happens all the time. Now, here's the thing. What do we do about this? What can we do? Here's what doesn't work, is trying to slow the swing down by doing something about your pride and doing something about your shame. This is what we normally do. Centuries past, most of the writing about character development talked about trying to go after pride. Humility was recommended. Uh, There was a lot written about not thinking too much of yourself. Um, The problem is that it very often results in false humility. Uh, I don't know if you read um, David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Do you remember the character Uriah Heep? This slimy, essentially like Satan guy who had this really bad habit of always going, I'm very humble, my mother and I are humble. It's this sick, uh, uh, false humility. So going after and trying to not be so prideful uh, has a, a, a bad track record. Now, as you may know, currently we're all about lifting up shame. All the writing now is, uh, you know, t- teachers are told not to say to kids, you're being bad. What do we say? We don't behave like that. We, we are striving to make sure that we don't feel 
as bad about ourselves. The problem is that it results in a shaky, insecure feeling good about yourself. Does, uh, I don't know if it's out happening at uh, the universities here, but do you know about triggers? Have you read this? This is now the new requirement at college campuses that students demand that if you're going to lecture or teach about something, there should be outside the door a list of triggers so that we'll know, warning, this lecture may include reference to uh, violence or uh, rape or whatever because I can't stand being uh, in the presence of something that might make me unhappy or might hurt me. I don't have a problem with that. I dealt with people who've been through real uh, abuse, and it can be hard. But folks, these aren't people that have been through, these are just regular kids that, that they're, they feel less ashamed, but it's so shaky that they're now requiring that don't, don't do anything to kind of uh, put a, uh, a hole in my bubble. So, oh, and by the way, if you ever read the Huffington Post, you ever see those headlines? It's all about open letter to the woman who shamed me when I was breastfeeding in public or model body shamed by, and you're like, okay, it's, that's all the deal is about shame. So trying to cure this swing, trying to tell yourself, stop being so proud of yourself. Or you're okay, stop, it doesn't work. It's limited. So what does work? What is the cure for man who thinks like he's a god? The Bible tells us that there is a surprising cure that no one saw coming. What if there is a god? What if the god thinks like a man? What if the god becomes man? What if he could be um, in our shoes, go through, but he would have to go through what we go through? Like a mother, he'd have to have a mother, he'd have to be a victim of racial prejudice, of rejection, poverty, all these things. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah? He was despised and rejected of men. Jesus wasn't even good looking. He'd gone through what you fear. Yeah, that's him. He knows this. And of course, that would be good, except that what happens if a man shows up who exposes our falseness and you have to kill him? You cannot allow that, and they didn't. A government could not allow a man who was raising up the poor like that. They were, they were causing riots. The religious leaders cannot have a man exposing their false idolatry and false connection to God. You have to kill him. But, but what if he was raised from the dead? What if God's love raised him from the dead, and he's now transformed and above and beyond what he was before, and he loves you? and wants you. You know what that does? It makes a mockery of the whole your pride and shame thing. It's kind of an inside joke. Instead of you having this inner part of you that sits enthroned trying to judge whether you're good or bad, there's now a man who really thinks like God because he is God, and he's a man, and that person needs to sit on the throne of your judgment. You see, Christian development is not self-improvement. It is being reborn. And in your head, and when you're thinking about the thing that you struggle with, I want to give you a different way to think about it. Because too often we think that what we need to be doing is trying to improve. When I think the Spirit working in you is trying to show you that you have no right any longer to judge you, even good or bad. 
Have you ever noticed that when you pray about something that you want, it's not always, there's no way it's automatic that it'll happen. It appears that sometimes the Spirit of Christ is not actually going for the same goal you're going for, like, like extreme advancement at work. Somehow it doesn't seem that the Spirit is all about that like I hoped. I can tell you this, he was not all about A's on the test that I didn't study for because I prayed about that all the time and didn't quite happen. It's almost like he's got a different goal than you have, and yeah, he does. It's a goal because it's not enough for him to give you success. It won't work. You have to, the answer is, wait, who is saying that, you're not, that it's not enough? That's you. That's that voice in your head. And we have these voices in our head all the time. That's why you have to study the Bible. That's why you have to come here to an authorized dealership and learn about the truth of God and Christ to know the real voice of Jesus in your head because you have this other voice that sounds like a God and says stuff that's not God at all. And it's so weird. I can't tell you how many times people have told me, well, you know, God knows that to get my attention, he has to hit me over the head with a two-by-four. Brothers and sisters, Jesus never hit anyone over the head with a two-by-four. That's not Jesus. That frustration and God, that's not Jesus. That's you. Jesus is gentle and kind and, and draws you. The motivation for the Christian development is not self-improvement. It is a drawn by love of the man who knows you, knows your life, and he wants you. And my wife and I talked about this yesterday. I always tell people, yeah, he loves you, but I want to throw this in. He likes you. Because, you know, love can feel like it's this general love of everybody. I always think it's important to remember that Jesus knows you, and he likes you. The Spirit of Christ in you can explain things about you that you do not understand about you because you're busy trying to be things that you're not. I think the, one of the first things when we arrive in heaven is he will explain you to you because he knows you well. So what do you feel bad about? Do you feel bad about your looks? Do you feel bad that you're not together? That's a huge one for me. I have spent my life trying to be organized and Peace. Uh, I, I read books. It's all kind of. It's this thing. I have this image that if I had it all together, everything. You have that, right? Your closet's clean, maybe. I mean, whatever. It, wh I feel bad that I'm not organized. Except that can't seem to find anywhere what Jesus talked about the extreme, ultimate power of organization. That's not His voice. But but here's the sad part. Even knowing that, yeah. Well, I don't care. That's what we are. Oh, how, that's what you need to pray for me for. Ken is actually trying to still be that, and Jesus loving me doesn't even help that. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So his goal is probably not going to be to give me ultimate Ikea togetherness like I might. Well, it's, it's not how he does it. But what do you deal with? Do you actually, women, do you, when I'm talking about shame, I know that every woman in here 13 and over has gone through and still goes through, she doesn't like her body, ever. And, of course, I talk with teenagers all the time. I talk with beautiful teenage girls who it's the ones that you think, oh, she's got it all together. She doesn't. She's not okay with her. Everybody else seems okay with her, but she's not kidding. This is too small. This is too big. It's too, she's too, whatever. She's never okay with it. But honestly, you've got to ask yourself, women, when you're looking in the mirror and you hear that voice going, girl... You need to lose about 30 pounds. Is that Jesus? Do you really think that's the voice of Christ who made you? I think you might listen more closely for a man saying, I love you, 
and you belong to me, and I will tell you what you are and what you're not. That's hard. We don't want to. We have an automatic self, a little God that wants to hold on. We must listen to his voice. Here's a big one. I'll just uh, make sure that we don't forget that. Money. I cannot tell you how many men have told me, men who work 80 hours a week, who have, they make uh, easily high six figures a year, and tell me that, no, I can't spend more time with my wife or my children because, you know, the Bible says that a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Is that really applicable here? Is that what Jesus is talking? And by the way, that's this one. It's one thing that Paul's actually talking about the, uh, the widow's list at the church, and you don't put a widow on there if someone could. It has nothing to do with this driven success thing. Is that Jesus that's pushing you to be the top, to be the best? I don't think so. And for you students, i got to tell you, um, I, I'm not, and this will upset your parents, I'm not sure he's in, uh, totally in, about you being an A student. Whatever happened to the B student? There was this article that came out. So whatever happened to the B student or the C student? Uh, the, the, some of us just, you know, it's hard. Well, now it's changed. No, no, it's my, my child is actually valedictorian. There's just some learning something that needs to be fixed and a pill, and it'll all be. No, it may not be. Is it be so terrible if you're just pretty good at school but not great? Uh, for many people, yeah. Is that Jesus? Is Jesus the one going, I don't, I don't think you're going to get into a good college. Is there even a verse about that? <laughs> But that's a tough one. And again, don't miss me. I'm not saying that you sh- don't start shaming you. Yeah, we should stop doing... That's what... The, you're back at it. It's, it's, it's surrender. Lord, I can't stop worrying about this. I can't stop judging me this way. Lord, help me and come and take the throne of my job, of my looks, of my schooling, all these things. It's, it's a process. It's a process that ends, and, and, and I'll finish with this. In the end, it's Peter that gives us the best example of what it looks like, of a self, a godlike self, dethroned. And it happens in, we won't read it, but it happens in John chapter 21. And it's, it's uh, where, uh, this is uh, after the resurrection, and this is the second catch of fish story. You remember? There's two stories where Jesus is on the bank, and there's some disciples out in the boat. Both times Peter's there. And Jesus says, cast your net on the other side. And they're like, okay, whatever. And they can't haul it in. And both times Jesus is not recognized at first. But here's the difference. The first time when Peter did recognize Jesus, he, he was stunned by the awesomeness of who Jesus was and said, get away from me. He, he felt not only the awesomeness of, of who Jesus is, but shame of who he is. Well, this is the second time. And some things have changed. This time when Jesus stands on the shore and says, hey, cast your nets on the other side, this is not very long at all after Peter has suffered the worst failure of his life. Peter went so far as to make the, the, uh, you remember this, he made the bold statement that I will never leave you, Lord. And you remember? Jesus told him, and, and again, not in a mean way. You can just see him going, oh, Peter. You're going to deny me three times, even before the, the midnight. The, and, and what happened? That's exactly what happened. This is humiliating for Peter. It's the end of, of uh, it could have been humiliating for Peter. But Peter, at this point, shows us something different. 
By the way, in this story, Jesus has changed. This is the resurrected Christ. We threw everything at him. He took it. God brought him through it. And he is not only fine, he's better and is promising that he will take us through the very same thing. So what does Peter show us? Now when this Savior, John, uh, the Apostle John said, you know, that's the Lord. Peter jumps in and swims to Jesus. Cannot even wait for the boat to get there. Instead of get away from me, it's the reverse. Everything will be okay if I'm with Jesus. And that's what I want you to know, that when you're doing and tempted with that same self-judgment, just swim to Jesus and, and let him be the comforter. Remember, then he asks him, three times he asks him, Peter, do you love me? The first time he said, do you love me more than these? Do you remember that? Like baiting the old, and Peter, he didn't even say, I know, not more than these. He just said, Lord, you know that I love you. That's what his answer every time, Lord, you know Because that's who really knows, Jesus. And can we pray the same thing? Lord, you know me. Lord, you know what I need. Can we be unburdened? Can you picture yourself non-defensive because there's nothing to defend? Can you picture yourself with someone coming up to you going, hey, I got a bone to pick with you, and you go, probably, what? I I mean, I do stuff all the time. What I do? Like, just open to hearing it. Can you imagine you on on the highway, and you're cut off? And you know that righteous feeling of, I should be two car lengths ahead of where I am right now. Can you imagine giving up traffic to, Lord, this is, it it's really becomes these, these moments of irritation and defensiveness can become for you signposts to show you where to go, where your soul is still sitting there making its judgment and seek to have the Lord dethrone that. It doesn't matter if you think you're good. It doesn't matter if you think you're bad. You don't think about you anymore. It's all Lord, you know. And that's the important difference. Our faith is not a self-improvement plan. It is rebirth. And it's not because of God's needing it. You need it. Because Jesus calls us this morning, and this is the calling that I think he has this morning, to lay down the burden of this back and forth, striving to be what you're not, and always failing to reach your own standard. And give that up and receive his peace This is the Jesus that says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you'll pray with me. Father God, this morning, I pray that we would all bring before you not our successes and not our failures, but that would bring before you the voice within us that judges ourselves. Lord, we are sorry. We do not belong to us anymore. I ask that you would give us the surrender, the peace of surrender, that you and you alone will be the judge of who we are. And Lord, I praise you, Lord God, that your Son knows us, has been through all of this, and has shown us the direction of passing through death into new life. We pray that for all of us, and we pray it in the name of the man who will be what we never have been, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.